Just no problem. I'm just screwing with you. Man. Oh no no no! It's hey, I mean, with technology now, it's 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 a good question to ask. I mean, <laughs> you want to be sure I'm wearing pants. <laughs> I didn't say I was wearing pants. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, but uh, but just to get on uh, on track here, um, I guess one of the questions is the the number of realtors uh, and real estate investors who who fail really are roughly the same if you look at the statistics and in your experience, uh, has there been a deciding factor uh, that separates the contenders from the pretenders? Uh, is it mostly luck? No, no, it's not luck at all. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll give you a funny lucky story. When I hired uh, Nathan, he's a, one of our staff people here. He's our leasing agent. And I was explaining to him that, uh, I just sold one of my rental houses. I sold it last year or earlier this year, and it brought $160,000, I believe it was. I said, Nathan, you know what I bought this house for? What's that? I said, I bought it for $33,000. He said, oh, you just got lucky. I think he was just messing with me, but it got me to thinking about that. That's not luck. I was owning it for 15 years or 20, something like that. That's 15 years worth of work. Mm -hmm. and that's, the luck had nothing to do with that. So, no, I don't think it's luck at all. No, not at all. So, I think it is diligence, sticking with it, making decisions. You know, if you don't make a decision, that's a decision in and of itself. But making decisions and going for moving forward and just sticking with it. risk tolerance, that'd be a big one also. You got to be, um, you got to be able to wait, uh, uh, take risk. The stick to itiveness is more than anything, though. You just got to jump in and do it. So, when it then for the people that 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 do fail, is it just the people they're not they haven't jumped fully in the pool? It's kind of one toe in, one toe out, and it's worse than if they if they just got in it. Yeah, commitment. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Commitment. That would be the probably the one word I would use. And you're right. I mean, I've been doing this for well, since 1989, so I'm in my 30th year, and I have seen realtors people that get their real estate license, and for that matter, people that want to be real estate investors i have seen them come and go i mean it's it's amazing to me how, how many of them just come into the business go out of the business come into the business go out of the business the running joke when i first got into this business with, with other people that i knew was you don't even bother running somebody's name until they've been around for at least six months <laughs> there's a good chance they're not gonna be <laughs> and and so that i mean that makes a lot of friends but i mean the the uh the cool part is too. I mean, you can brag to your friends that you're a real estate inv investor, but yeah, I mean, it's if you're gonna fail, go fail big. I guess is what you're, what you're getting at. And no, everybody does. Uh, another friend of mine, Wyatt Wallace, on his podcast. I was on his podcast some time ago, but on his podcast the other day, he's a relatively young real estate investor and just lost money on his first deal. Lost a pretty good size amount of money, apparently. And he claims, and I tend to agree, that you're not a real real estate investor until, you, until you've taken your first loss. It happens eventually. So, yeah, it, it's a matter of risk tolerance, no doubt. And uh, like you said, you've been around uh, in this business for, for a number of years, which that alone, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a fierce business. It's dog-eat-dog, dog dog and, and so you haven't been got yet. So, um, you know, not only congratulations for that, but one of the things that I think we've – seen with the growth of social media is and maybe it's always this been uh, been this way the the gurus who will charge an arm and a leg to mentor people or sell them a course or something like that i guess 
I guess my first question, has it always been this way? And do you think this has hurt more people than it's going to help? So, um, and by the way, I didn't say I hadn't got got. And we'll come to that on one of your questions when you talk about how recession-proof he is. Talk about that then. But, uh, yes, do I think that there's now with the advent of social media and stuff like that? Here, you know what? Look behind me. You'll see my bookcase here. <laughs> yes, sir. Give me just... I got a couple of examples. Give me just one second. Yeah, I like to read, especially business books, especially real estate books. And I got a couple of examples here. Some of you may remember Wade Cook, Stock Market Miracles, Wall Street Moneymaker, whatever it is, Wall Street Money Machine. Uh, Wade Cook also did a series on real estate investing as well. I'm not sure. Rumor has it that he served time in jail after that. But that was back in the 80s and 90s that Wade Cook was around. You had Carlton Sheets also. Carlton Sheets is a, was a really big one back in the 90s. He ran all the infomercials late at night, uh, you know, to, and it was really motivating. I, I had his course also. I don't have it in my bookcase anymore because it was cassette tapes, and I've already gotten rid of all my cassette tapes. <laughs> but, you, that's you know, today you've got a lot of the gurus also, business coaches. I mean, I've got Michael Burt stuff right here also uh, in my office. Uh but there's, you know, dozens and dozens of business coaches and in particular uh, uh, real estate coaches. Yeah. Now, do I think they're worth it? Man, you can spend a lot of money on a guru. And I'm just thinking to myself, if you're going to spend that kind of money on a guru, you're going to be a whole lot better off spending that money on a piece of real estate. Yeah, one of those one of those will cash flow at some point <laughs> and not into his I, I tend to agree. Now you're probably going to find people that disagree with me. That's fine. I'll even I'll even argue with them if they if they want to. But uh, I I think they are not worth what they ask. What's uh, what's the latest one that's running around? Is it uh, is his name Tracy that came into town recently? I don't. It, it's one of the TV shows, one of the HGTV shows uh, that uh, he's been in Nashville a couple of times recently. I went to one of his free sessions, uh, and frankly, it was almost laughable. But anyway, laughable in the sense that. Um, the information given was bare bones or, or just, you know, you go to all one of these things and it's all, um, as a, as a, as a, a man once put it, um, it's all cotton candy. Well, this is going to sound bad and I'm good at sounding bad, but, um, the material wasn't bad. It was elementary uh, because of his audience, uh, but the material wasn't bad. It was the audience that was laughable. And I did go to one of the daytime sessions. Most of his sessions were in the in the evenings. So in the daytime session, it's you know full of a bunch of wannabe real estate investors that don't have a job. So it was the audience that was more laughable than the material. That sounds terrible, doesn't it, Kevin? There's a book out that I read some time ago called All Real Estate is Local, and it was produced by the National Association of Realtors. Um, I agree with that. All real estate is local. You know, do we talk about recessions later in the day or is that yes. in this this right here? OK, because uh, I've been through a few, obviously, and, and seen things come and go. With that being said, yes, it has market driven factors. There's no doubt about that. It's economics. I mean, really, that's what it boils down to. If you've got inventory out there that's available for rent and there's a bunch of it and not any demand, well, rents are going to come from down. On the other hand, if 
we don't have any inventory, which is what is much more common in our market anyway, and rents go up. I'm not sure how much rent more rents can go up, though. And that comes from a macroeconomic factor also, because wages haven't kept up. I mean, right now you've got somewhere around 30 percent of Americans spending in excess of 30 percent of their annual income on housing. I mean, you can't sustain that for very much longer. That's that's uh, uh, just, you know, economics 101 will tell you that can't happen for much longer. So I really don't see rents pushing up much more until wages do. That being said, we're seeing a lot of pressure on wages right now, too. And as we're moving uh, more so towards towards economic factors and, and something that uh, we've been getting to is Tennessee wasn't hit that much by uh, 2008 from what I've heard. Now, I was in middle school at the time, so forgive me if I'm not uh, an aficionado on exactly what happened, but um, is Tennessee relatively insulated from a place like Florida or, or California, for example, or Massachusetts? So, Kevin, I respectfully disagree. I think we took a bath in the Great Recession. And a lot of people like to call it the real estate depression. I'm sure you've heard that expression before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so somewhere around in our market, right here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, we saw about a 30% drop in rents across the board. Uh, there was nobody renting houses. Uh, so we kept having to drop prices. I mean, we, got, we printed signs up that said things like, pets welcome. You know, whenever you're doing stuff like that, it shows desperation. We weren't charging application fees. We were paying for applications ourselves. We were doing whatever we could just to get somebody in a property. And the only thing that would change anything was dropping the price. Now, of course, as you drop prices, you would see tenants that you had up here. They would say, oh, well, look at these prices drop. I'm going to move out and find one down here. So as leases were renewing, we were offering good tenant discounts. Because you've been such a good tenant, we're going to lower your rent. That's not normal. Normally, you're increasing rent as time goes on. So, yes, the Great Recession was very painful even here in Tennessee. Was it like Las Vegas or Southern California or Florida? No, it wasn't that bad. I mean, they saw something upwards of 70 percent hits. Uh, but in uh, even right here in Tennessee, it was pretty brutal. Along with that came, you know, foreclosures from our owners, our owners who you know, a lot of them were, you know, from California or New York or something like that, had a lot of money to spend or little money to spend, but they got those loans. They were interest-only loans. They were playing a completely an appreciation play. They bloomed in five years. So whenever the market dropped and the values of their property dropped and the rents dropped and their loans come due, they didn't really have a choice. There was nobody to sell the house to. There was no way to get their money back out of it. A lot of them got foreclosed on. And a lot of people ask me, and, and I think you'll be fascinated by this, Kevin, because I know you like the economic stuff. A lot of people ask me, well, wait a minute, shouldn't the demand go up for rentals if nobody's buying houses, which kind of intuitively makes sense, right? Yeah, of course. That's where you can respond. <laughs> it kind of intuitively makes sense. But here's what happened. And I learned this from Lawrence Hume. He's the National Association of, Real- uh, National Association of Realtors uh, economist, their chief economist. During that period of time, we weren't the, the U.S. as a whole was not creating households. As people were losing houses into foreclosure and foreclosure, they no longer qualified to rent a property. They didn't qualify to buy a property, so they moved into mom and dad's house or aunt and uncle's house. As kids were coming out of school, they didn't have jobs. They couldn't rent anything. They were moving back in with home. 
we weren't creating households at a time at the time. So that's what really keeps our economy going is creating the households, not so much the house sales as much as it is creating households. So that's why the demand plummeted and rents plummeted. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, I suppose points to something that could be more worrying in the future. Um, one that I think, I believe in some cases it's driving some of the uh, more radical politics because we had a whole generation that came out of college in debt and couldn't necessarily find a job and, and politics, not well, politics had a little to do with 08, but um, that's another topic for another day. But um, essentially you have the, the stereotypical millennial, the, the very left-leaning, um, almost socialist young person that really has has been hit kind of by this effect. But in the middle, what I think nobody is is talking about, like you were saying, is is the older people that have a parent to take care of and a um, a underperforming uh, young person. And I suppose what you're arguing is that that is more so driving a, a positive or negative uh, real estate market. Sure. Currently, you've got the boomers that are getting older. And frankly, Generation X is going to have to clean everything up. Um, no offense to you boomers out there, but you guys made a big mess. That Generation X is going to have to clean up. And the millennials are going to make a big mess that Kevin, your generation, Generation Z is going to have to clean up. It is what it is. It's a cycle that we go through. With that being said, I hate to throw millennials under the bus. I have got an office full of millennials. And, and Kevin, you've met some of them. And they are hardworking, go-getting people. I, mean, I don't know what I'd do without my hardworking millennials. I gotta say. Yeah, and sometimes you know maybe it's a it's a little too easy to pick on them, you know, while they're down and all that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, changing gears over to to business and uh, keeping in line with with politics, um, do you think that again throwing in social media here that that avoiding politics is has the same essential uh, nature that it once did? in business um or do you think that they can be used in a productive way you know we see nike with with their ads and and we have uh here in tennessee we've got uh in keeping with the sports we've got clay travis who has gone the other way and uh, has built a successful business so is that applicable across different industries or how do you see politics and, and business so i see politics as being very polarizing which frustrates me. I mean, ESPN is a great example. ESPN went off the deep end on all the political stuff going on around sports and was broadcasting and publishing a lot of this. And what did happen to their ratings? Their ratings plummeted. They've made a conscious decision to get pull away from that just to bring their audience back. Because let's face it, we don't go watch sports to listen to politics. We watch sports to watch sports, right? So you've seen a lot of that. From what you were saying just a minute ago, and by the way, Kevin, I love politics and I love arguing politics. I'll give you an example that really frustrated me the other day. I was in uh, Chesapeake, Virginia, and I was discussing uh, with a friend of mine and I happened to lean right. And this friend of mine, he leans left. Matter of fact, he was a former union boss. Uh, we love to debate politics together. We argue back and forth and walk away friends. That's what we've lost in this country being able to actually talk to each other and still walk away and, and agree to disagree. It got so poor that, you know, we were walking back into the hotel together where we were staying at and we went and had a, a beer together and there was a group around us as well. And the leader of the organization that we were in 
came up to us and asked us to take it somewhere else because we were bothering other people. Now, Kevin, we weren't raising our voice. We weren't yelling at each other. We were just debating back and forth. But the politics scares people. So you ask me about social media and politics. I don't post anything on social media about politics anymore. But it's not that I don't have a love for politics. It's because I don't want the negativity. The last thing I posted about politics was about the Affordable Care Act. And that's because my insurance premiums now have gone up to about $16,000 a year for just me and my small three-person family. I mean, that's a salary I could be paying to somebody. And I just posted that. Do you know how many haters I got? And all the negativity, and it just piled on. And I said to myself, you know what? I don't need that negativity in my life. I'm going somewhere. So no, I don't post negative things anymore. And politics falls into that category. And so it sounds like that 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 has evolved over time too, where there was a time um, before we got into kind of the depths and maybe it wasn't, maybe it was this way without the social media in the, in the seventies and, you know, notoriously the late sixties where we were more polarized. Um, But have you seen, and does it worry you that the, the, the trend of the larger companies still takes a, a very left leaning approach and, and, and marketing campaigns, do you think many of them will have that ESPN effect where um, people either stop buying or there is some sort of uh, monetary loss? Um, and why is it, do you think, that they, they lean left almost uh, unanimously? Well, I don't have a crystal ball or anything, but I do know an awful lot of people that have tuned out companies and especially the entertainment industry that, you know, puts politics into their uh, you know, environment. And it doesn't really matter whether it's right or left. People are just tuned out by it. Uh, I, I mentioned to you before that I really love politics. As a matter of fact, I was the government affairs chairperson of the National Association of Residential Property Managers for a couple of years. And I've been on our government affairs committee of the Realtors Association as well. And whenever I ask members of these organizations, if you like politics, it's less than 10% that raise their hand. So frankly, Nobody cares. And that's not what they want to see whenever they open up a shoebox. It's not what they want to hear when they turn on their you know, music radio station. They are wanting what they're wanting, and it's not politics. And yeah, I think, I think it will have an effect. And maybe rightfully so, because it, it does bother me when, I, uh, uh, when I'm watching you know, football and the Gillette ad comes on and it's you know, talking to me about how terrible men are, but I should shave with their you know, razors. Um, oh, gosh, yes. You know, the whole Colin Kaepernick thing, I pretty much tuned out NFL football for a couple of years. And it wasn't that I was, I mean, I was opposed to the whole, I'm a veteran, so it offended me. But that's not really the point. It's just that it didn't belong there. You know, and then it just piled on with the NBA also. And anyway, so yeah, I, I pretty much tuned it out there for a couple of years. And I'm still not really a huge sports fan to this day, because I mean, I don't want to listen to that politics stuff when I'm watching sports. Right, and, and and much I think like uh, like everything that that gets built on a huge industry, the the media surrounding sports and the sports media, you know, they're paid to to debate, you know, if Kevin Durant or LeBron James is the best basketball player, and instead they're talking about the Constitution. It does seem a little out of place, and especially someone like you who has who has defended the Constitution um, uh, with with everything. I, I, I can't imagine the. Um, 
you know, we talk about people being offended and that to me is, is rather offensive. Um, not that they don't I have the right China, to say it. I got basketball players who, by the way, have zero expertise in this whatsoever, arguing about Chinese macroeconomics. You know, I mean, come on. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, and and it seems odd to shift it's gears. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and I mean, it seems weird to to shift gears here now, but but with the thousands of. Uh, of books, and I suppose we're on the topic with with how to grow a, a business. But there are thousands of books, if not hundreds of thousands, that have been written on on business and on networking and all sorts of different ways to grow uh, businesses. Has there been something that that you feel uh, is overlooked when people starting in the industry that that helped you? So I, I can tell you what's helped me. I don't think they're overlooked. Uh, first one is the E myth. If anybody is thinking about starting a business or getting into business or becoming an entrepreneur, you need to pick up and read the E-Myth. I actually think it's titled The E-Myth Revisited Now. Uh, it's um, it's a basic introduction to what an entrepreneur is, what's to be expected of them. And frankly, it tells you, you need to get over being what you were and you are something else now. Uh, it's a, a must read for anybody that's um, uh, interested in becoming an entrepreneur. If you are interested in getting into real estate investment, and this was not overlooked either, it's very popular. The number one must read would be Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert, Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, I, he break, breaks it down into simple you know, thoughts about why real estate is good, why passive income can help you generate wealth, as well as the appreciation, amortization, and everything like that. It goes into also owning businesses, but it's more about making your investments make you more investments. Again, must read if you're thinking about getting into real estate investing. A, uh, a book that may be overlooked, maybe a couple of them. I don't know if you call this one. I don't know if I call this one a business book, but it's called The Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's a research book on what makes people successful. Um, he breaks down, you know, successful from a sports perspective, from successful from a business perspective. Not technically a business book, but I, I really like that one as well. And finally, this one probably is overlooked, and it's called Thou Shalt Prosper. And it is by, oh, I can't remember the name of the author now. Sorry about that. But it is a research study on the Jewish tradition on why they're so successful. I mean, you, you think about it, the people of a Jewish background pepper the Forbes 500 list or Forbes 400 list of the you know most successful people in the world, yet they represent 2% of the population. I mean, they're doing something right. And this goes through um, uh, details on how he investigated it. It's called Thou Shalt Prosper, the Ten Commandments of Making Money. Uh, so those are four that I would recommend uh, highly. I, I had actually not heard of that, that last one. That's something that I'll have to add to my uh, reading list now. Uh, it is interesting, yeah. You look at it and and throughout history, and and maybe that's for some of the reasons, and not to get too heavy on a, on a business topic, but perhaps their success is one of the reasons why uh, throughout history, obviously they're the most persecuted group. Uh, you can go back to Egypt, um, you know, obviously during the twentieth century, um, wherever they went, uh, you know, they faced horrible, horrible um, uh, persecution for their beliefs. But it's it's something that that if it can be discerned mathematically, I think is, is something 
to to be looked at. But but lastly, and and to end this on a on a high note, um, do you think that and as someone who has now built a uh, a large a successful business with with people under you, what was the most difficult part about delegating those tasks and not being the guy who does everything? You know, at this point. Okay, so the most the most difficult thing in running a business is human resources, is handling your human resources. I don't know if there's an easy answer to it. I've read a lot of books on it. I'm reading one right now called Traction uh, that's really good. Uh, and, and I'm going to put a lot of those uh, concepts in place as, as I move forward. Uh, the human resources part is really difficult. But the reality is, if you want to be successful, you got to have help. You cannot do it by yourself. Delegating tasks is hard, no doubt about it, but you have to do it. You've got to, well, in traction, they call it let go of the vine. You've got to let go of the vine and, and hire competent people to do it for you. That also means you got to pay them. People ask me all the time, when do you do it? When do you hire your first hire? Obviously, you can't do it if you don't have any business, but the sooner the better. You will increase your business exponentially after your first hire. And I guess I've noticed that after every hire. One other thing an entrepreneur needs to be prepared for is going broke. I don't know a single entrepreneur uh, that's been successful that has not gone broke at some point. And that includes the person you're interviewing right now. And that was the Great Recession. I was doing land development also. I did a commercial development. And right in the middle of that, Great Recession happens. And next thing you know, there was nobody to sell lots to. There was nobody to sell uh, commercial properties to. And I still had $4 million I had to pay. That was uh, that I was borrowed against. Now I never filed bankruptcy, so I never went bankrupt. But man, I teetered on it. I mean, bouncing back and forth with banks, this, that, and the other. I, I did definitely teeter on it, and uh, you, I went from a net worth up here to a negative net worth down here. The good news is, you rebound pretty quickly. You get through it, you muddle through it, you rebound pretty quickly. You uh, learn the lessons from it, and you move forward. But that's a painful process. And for any entrepreneur, they need to be prepared for it. And it's, I think something that's overlooked, you know, there was, um, there was a man and I can't rightly remember his name, but, um, he was debating actually, you know, it comes from the debates, uh, Senator Nelson Aldridge, who was instrumental in the, uh, in the federal reserve, but also approved it as a counterbalance to, uh, to the income tax, which he thought was, uh, a communist plot. And something that should be uh, struck down uh, immediately. But he essentially said the same th same thing. He had family members, um, well, most notably um, was uh, related to, in some capacity, uh, the Rockefellers. And um, in his 1913 jargon, essentially said, nobody cares when you don't have any money. But as soon as you have a lot of money, people start saying, oh, well, you have you have the nice car. You can do X, Y and Z. But it doesn't seem like they ever want to put in that kind of work. So was it about when you're in that in those lower moments? Is it always the that, you know, you're going to rebound? Is that kind of what keeps you going or what what catapults you out of that that bad, bad position? You know, that's hard to say. I've never suffered from depression, but I feel like going through those dark times was as close to it as I'm ever going to get. I mean, you really do feel like you're in a tunnel with all these people chasing you with no light when you're in a dark tunnel and you, there's no, you can't find the light at the other end. And those people chasing you are the creditors. You know, they're, they're, 
you know, nipping at this heel, grabbing at this ankle, you know, and, and, you know, pulling your shirt tails, you know, all this kind of stuff. What I look back and realize what got me through it, the reason I didn't close my doors, which was very tempting to do, was I realized I had only two employees at the time. But if I closed my doors, what happened to them? You know, as a business owner, you have a really big responsibility, not just to you and your family, but your employees and their families. And at the time, my one of my employees, their husband had already been laid off from his job. So they would have had nothing if if I'd have closed the doors. The other one, the wife had been laid off from her job also. Again, they'd have had nothing. And they were between the two of them raising five children. You had my child to it also. It's not just three families. It's also six children that are all my responsibility. And I saw that. And I really, that really is what kept me going every day was the responsibility, not just to me and my family, but to my staff as well. And I think that for anyone who's, who's listening, who, um, you know, might, might be considering being an entrepreneur because there was an ad with a Lamborghini in it. I think that's <laughs> the more, the more important aspect is exactly, I think what just, what Scott just mentioned is that it's not just yourself, but, but providing for others really, I think at the root of it is what, what as human beings keep us, keeps us on that, that good track and that good uh, moral path. And, um, I'll get off my soapbox there, I suppose, but uh, I am out of questions. Is there anything uh, parting that you have uh, for us? Anything that um, you think we didn't touch on here that, that, that people really ought to know about being self-employed, but it's not all, it's not all Ferraris and, and being your own boss and, you know, the pretty girl from high school might actually notice you this time. <laughs> well, for starters, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you always want to, what's that country song? How do you like me now? Yeah, it doesn't really happen. <laughs> uh, so I will say this, it is a ton of hard work. It really is. It, if you are accustomed to 40 hour weeks and having your weekends off, you're not an entrepreneur. You're not going to make it in your own business. You're going to spend 80 hour weeks. You're going to blow all your weekends. And this is going to sound cold, you know, they talk about work-life balance. You hear that, especially millennials. You hear that a lot. I got to have work-life balance. I got to have, you know, time for my family. I got time for my kids. I got time for my business. Well, the reality is if you want to start and have a successful business, there's no such thing, especially early on, as work-life balance. You're going to miss soccer games. You're going to miss recitals. You're going to miss, you know, funerals. You're going to miss weddings. These things are going to happen to keep your business afloat and keep it going. But whenever you get through that, and it takes a lot of hard work, when you get through that and you can build a team of people, then you can get into what, um, I forget the author calls it, there's a book called uh, The 4-Hour Work Week. That's when you get there. Kevin, I don't work near as hard as I used to. I got people that do it for me now because I worked so hard in the past. Was it, I think Denzel Washington says, you work hard, let's say you work hard today to do what you want tomorrow, something to that effect. Um, I, think I, I completely concur with that. Uh, so th that's what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I guess there's one other thing I'd like to mention, if you don't mind, Kevin, because I don't think I completely answered your question about Tennessee and the recession proofness of it. We only talked about that one recession, the Great Recession. But we've been through a lot of recessions in the last 30 years. And you're absolutely right. Tennessee was pretty much unaffected by it. Tennessee has been growing for I don't know how long, for ever since I've been in business 
uh, especially here in Middle Tennessee and, you know, real estate sales, you know, rentals, all these kind of things have really never been affected by a recession at all, except for the Great Recession. And a lot of that is because, let's face it, it's a good place to go. Our political base is good. We have a, a, a balanced budget within, the, within our politics. And God, don't let the state legislators hear me say this, but relative to other states, we're undertaxed. Uh, and by the way, I'll still complain about my taxes, so don't get me wrong. Um, it's a good place to live. So that uh, you put all those things, the, the, the good political and economic environment and the fact that we're centrally located. Yeah, we've dodged a lot of bullets.